Good evening. Welcome to the Ecology Hour. My name is Tim Bray, and uh, with me by Squadcast is Dr. Robert Spies. And after last month's uh, show about cowbirds, we are returning back to the deep blue sea. In fact, going all the way down to the bottom, I believe, once more. Bob, uh, who is our benthic guest tonight? <laughs> tonight, we're very happy to have Dr. Craig Smith. He's a professor at the Department of Oceanography. University of Hawaii at Manoa, and Craig has long studied things falling to the bottom of the ocean and, and what happens to them after that, and particularly whale carcasses, which uh, bring a surprising amount of carbon down from the surface to the bottom of the ocean, and uh, all kinds of interesting things pursue after that. So, Craig, welcome to the program. Thank you. Glad to be here. Yeah, we uh, usually start our programs by asking our guests how they got to be interested in what they're doing. Tell us a little bit, you know, about your history as a, as a biologist. Okay, well, actually, I, I became interested in uh, the biology of the ocean or ecology of the ocean as a, as a kid when I lived on a sailboat in the Mediterranean for a number of years. And, of course, was fascinated by the environment around me. So I decided I wanted to study marine biology or, or marine ecology. So I went to... Um, Michigan State University, a landlocked university, and desire grew an even a much greater desire to go work on the ocean. And then I went to Scripps Institution of Oceanography in San Diego and studied uh, deep sea biology, actually, is what I did my PhD dissertation on, and including food for the deep sea, where food is coming from to support the communities of animals that live on, in the deep sea floor, the largest solid habitat on the, on the face of the earth. And this has always been interesting because the deep, the deep sea floor is, is without light. There's no primary production. So the food is sinking from the surface ocean. And it's the, the way in which it sinks and the rate at which it sinks to the bottom, what kinds of particles reach the bottom as food has long been an area of, of interest of mine. Yeah, the typical picture is that the productivities in the surface of the ocean is where, the, where most of the nutrients are in concentrated form uh, and there's light so that uh, things can photosynthesize and then things happen in the surface. A eats B and B eats C and so forth. And then it's kind of a rain of particulate matter down from the surface. Are there other patterns in the ocean that are important? Well, the rain of particles is really important. But what's important and important to recognize is that there are a whole range of different particle sizes. And uh, most of the organic material comes down in the form of smaller particles like uh, phytoplankton, aggregates of phytoplankton cells, fecal pellets from zooplankton like copepods. But there are also very large particles that come down. And the largest, of course, are whale carcasses. It turns out that most great whales, when they die, sink to the deep sea floor. And this causes a huge input of organic matter, of food material at the seafloor in one location, a gigantic pulse. Most of the car organic material or food is raining down in these small particles, kind of a diffuse rain spread out over the whole wide area of the seafloor. But a whale brings a concentrated pulse of super high quality, rich organic material in one, in one fell swoop. Uh, so that when a whale sinks to the bottom, a great whale, it brings uh, the equivalent of thousands of years or over a thousand years of organic carbon to the seafloor underlying it. So it's, it's a massive food pulse. Uh, 
And because most of the deep sea floor is what we say food limited, there's very little food availability generally. There's, there's this very weak rain of organic material coming down. A whale fall is a bonanza that can fuel a variety of different kinds of communities for long periods of time, provide an energy source in this concentrated energy source at one location in these generally food poor communities. Yeah, so typically, typically your uh, primary production will be kind of a diffuse rain that uh, uh, gets eaten up, uh, it gets diluted the further it goes down and gets recycled back up to the surface. But then every once in a while you get one of these whale carcasses and it just, it's like a, a, a bomb of organic material that, that reaches the bottom. Does this, does this do anything different uh, as far as the, the way the ecosystem handles this uh, input of material? Yeah, the whale, whale falls, you know, the large whales are, they're different in, in certain ways. Now, you know, as a graduate student, I was interested in whale falls because I was just, they're the end members of the size of a food particle that could come down, can come down in the ocean. I thought there might be some emergent qualities of these giant whale food particles and actually tried to sink a dead whale when I was a graduate student unsuccessfully. But then we happened to find one by accident while we were tra traveling along with Alvin, the, the human-occupied vehicle submarine Alvin. We found one in 1987, a, a whale skeleton in the bottom. And what we realized is that the, this system was different than we expected. This whale skeleton had giant clams, like the kinds that you see at hydrothermal vents. Um, it had a very rich com community of animals and mats of sulfur bacteria growing on the whale bones. And so we got very interested in this. And so we've started, uh, we, we, we tried to find whale skeletons in the bottom of the ocean, national ones, and we found a few of them, but they're hard to find, even though there are many of them on the seafloor, they fall to the whale skeleton or whale carcasses fall to the seafloor kind of randomly. So they're, you can't follow geology and find one. You just have to kind of luck into one. So we decided to, we're interested in how whale falls uh, simulate or foster different kinds of communities on the bottom of the ocean. So we started doing whale sinking experiments where we would, we got whale carcasses that had died from natural causes or, and then we towed them to sea and sink them in a location, known location so they, we could then visit them over time. And we've been doing this now for a number of decades and we found some really interesting things that we find that when a whale sinks to the sea floor, the community of animals that use, utilize it goes through a succession. There's a transition from one kind of community to another over time. And what our experiments and those of other people have shown is that when a whale first hits the sea floor, it's exploded by what we call mobile scavengers. These are large mobile scavengers, uh, sleeper sharks, hagfish, uh, amphipods, crabs that can come in and feed on the soft tissue of the, of the whale. And depending on the size of the whale, if it's 30 tons or so, this, these scavengers feed on the soft tissue, remove all the muscle and, and, and uh, blubber um, for a period of, of months to a year or so. And so there's a huge aggregation of thousands of scavengers, many sleeper sharks, thousands of hundreds of thousands of hagfish that are just gnawing on this carcass. And in the process, they're removing the soft tissue, they're taking it away, but they're also feeding sloppily. So just all this activity, all these scavengers 
removes small particles, breaks off small particles from the whale of, of whale tissue that then settles out on the sea floor. And so after the scavengers do their work, there's still a lot of organic material left that settled out on the seafloor, blubber that's gotten pushed into the bottom by the whale, the weight of the whale carcass. And then what we, we call the next stage, the enrichment opportunist stage, where there are specialized species that like organic rich conditions on the seafloor, particularly in sediments, but also on the whale bones. And they come in and colonize in very high abundance. And this includes a variety of polychaete worms um, that live in the sediments, some of them that bore into the bones. And some of these, this, the, the members, uh, well, this enrichment opportunist stage is functionally similar to the kinds of communities you see around sewer outfalls in shallow water, where sewer outfalls also make very organic rich conditions. And even some of the same families of polychaetes are represented, uh, but the species are different. And this, this stage where organic, the organic enriched sediments are exploited actually does seem to attract a variety of whale fall specialists, animals that we haven't found anywhere else, but in the organic rich sediments. And also uh, during this stage, we see the bone boring worms, the osidax worms that are, they're kind of polychaete that burrows into whale bones. They secrete acid and burrow into the bones and then they consume the the, the whale lipids or oils that are, the whale bones are very rich in. Um, and so these osidacrons are really weird. They're kind of, they're related to the giant tube worms that deep sea hydrothermal vents or hot vents in the bottom of the ocean, although they're different species and they have a different, um, different adaptations. Uh, but they're, they're highly specialized for dissolving bones with acid and then exploiting this rich lipid reservoir a few a centimeter or so into the whale bones. That's kind of an amazing adaptation for an event that happens in any given patch of seafloor. This uh, a whale fall is an extraordinarily rare event. Uh, so these things are just kind of lurking for a thousand years, waiting for a whale to fall on top of them, or are they drifting around in the currents? Well, on regional scales, uh, whale falls are not rare. If you do the the population level calculations, which we've done, and look at how many whales even now live in the ocean and die or sink into the seafloor. On regional scales, a lot of them are, are sinking. And so if you, if you do these calculations, um, which we've done and published, you find that the nearest neighbor distance, the mean spacing between whale falls on the bottom of the ocean in the Northeast Pacific, for example, on the California margin, is on the order of tens of kilometers. So the, the distance from one whale fall to the next one uh, particularly sulfide-rich whale falls, which is another stage I'll talk about in a while, is on the order of tens of kilometers. And that's a very reasonable distance for larvae that drift in the water column to disperse. Um, for example, hydrothermal vent communities are also these very isolated island communities that are actually spaced at much greater distances than tens of kilometers. And they have the larvae, the animals that live in these habitats on whale falls, on hydrothermal vents, um, produce larvae which can then go up into the water column, they re release on the water column and they can drift for tens to hundreds of kilometers until they find another suitable habitat. They can delay uh, metamorphosis into adult stage, right? That's correct. What these larvae are, they're, 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 yeah, they're not adult, they're pre-adult stages and they generally, a lot of them carry their own energy reserves with them. They're, they're, called, they're what we call less of the trophic. They, they, have, they carry a lot of energy in the larva 
Mm. And then the larva can live on this energy reserve for weeks to months, maybe even up to a year in the cold deep sea. And so they can disperse quite large distances. So, um, and whale falls are one of these island habitats where you have populations of specialists that reach very high abundance in these productive whale fall habitats, produce lots of larvae, thousands of larvae that then can drift for days or weeks or months until one of them or a few of them find another suitable habitat. This is happening in the, uh, in the deep, dark and very, very cold seafloor, right? The, the, the metabolic processes happen at extremely slow rates down there. Yeah, the metabolism of the larvae is slowed way down. So compared to uh, warm surface water. So yeah, they, they're, they're, they can, there's a lot of evidence now of connectivity studies that have used genetic analyses, but also some energetic studies where larvae from some of these island habitats have in the deep sea, these rich or uh, food rich habitats have burned up and actually measured how much energy they have in their metabolic rates to see how long they can last on the energy reserves they have. And it looks like weeks to months for, for many of them. The scavengers that show up, the larger ones, are they specializing on these whale falls as well, or is there other sources of food for them in between whales? Well, that's a really interesting question. Probably they're not whale fall specialists. Um, most of them, in fact, all of them are found in other kinds of organic enrichment, other kinds of carcass falls, for example, tuna and shark carcasses and things. So the, ca- the scavengers, uh, are generalized typically. But one thing that is interesting is that sleeper sharks, one of the, the largest scavengers on the California margin, when they've their gut contests have been studied in Alaska, it's been found that a major component of their gut contents is whale blubber or whale tissue. Huh. So in Alaska, they may be getting a significant proportion of their energy from whale, from whale falls. Uh, so they're not specialists, but they, they may that may allow them to attain particular population sizes. What kind of numbers are we talking about? You said there are a few tens of kilometers apart, but uh, how many whale falls per year are we talking about? Well, for the gray whale, it's a, it's probably uh, hundreds to a thousand or more a year. Um, depends on what kind of mortality. I mean, the, the gray whale mortality varies from year to year. There are about 20... 25 to 28,000 gray whales in the Northeast Pacific and something like uh, one to 2,000 appear to be dying every year um, or, you know, roughly. It's actually hard to measure that. Um, And in some years right now, actually, there's a mortality event going on for the gray whales or a lot of them are dying um, and more of them are washing up than normally. Uh, on On a big year, 300 or more gray whales carcasses may wash up on the on the on the coast from between southern california and british columbia um but most of most of the whales that are dying are not washing up on the on the coast they're they're sinking out so we know that a lot more of them are ending up in the deep sea than those 300 that we're finding as strandings maybe i should talk a little bit about the third stage before i talk about how many of these whale carcasses are on the bottom because it depends on the the successional stage, the, the calculations. But after the enrichment opportunists colonize these whale falls, um, then there's another stage that gradually takes over. Um, it's not an abrupt change, but these stages are all overlapping. But after the enrichment opportunist stage, 
then we see what's called the, the sulfophilic stage or sulfur-loving stage, where what occurs for the large whale carcasses, the large whale skeletons, you know, adult great whales, their bones are very rich in, in lipid or oil, whale oils, up to 60 to 80% oil by weight. Wow. In fact, something like 10% of the total lipid in a, in a whale carcass, a great whale, is in the skeleton. And this is actually a, a, an unusual adaptation of great whales. And what happens is that they have these giant bones in their skeletons that are well calcified. So it's a, like a rock, but it's full of some 60 to 80% of the mass is, is oil or whale lipids that is very energy rich. And it's this energy, this lipid is locked in a bone matrix. And in the deep sea, it can only be consumed by bacteria in the deeper parts of the bone that colonize the bone and gradually decompose the whale lipid from the outside in. So there's front of bacteria gradually consuming this whale lipid. And it's so energy rich that the system goes anaerobic, uh, the microbial community degrading the lipids, just like when, when an egg rots, it, it goes anaerobic because there's so much organic material and oxygen can't diffuse in very well. So what happens when, as these microbial communities break down the whalebone lipids is the system goes anaerobic. So oxygen becomes used up and then um, sulfate reducing bacteria take over in the decomposition process. So sulfate, which is used as an electron acceptor in place of oxygen, it's used in respiration, diffuses into the bone the sulfate re reducing bacteria use sulfate as their in their respiration and produce sulfide or hydrogen sulfide which is an energy rich compound that then diffuses out of the bone and then supports these mats of of sulfur oxidizing bacteria things like bagiatoa um, that live on the outside of the bones and also in the tissues of these giant clams mesquimide clams that similar to those that live at hydrothermal vents and and mussels and tube worms so it creates what we call a chemoautotrophic community or chemosynthetic community that's using chemical energy rather than organic matter sinking from the surface ocean, using this chemical energy from the sulfide coming out directly as an energy source. And that's actually what got us, when we saw these vent-like clams around the whale skeleton, that's, got, that's when we recognized, well, there's something really interesting going on that nobody had predicted. Um, and it turns out that there are well, we've now documented over 400 species that live on whale skeletons in this sulfophilic or sulfur-loving stage. Um, and many, not well, a, a, quite a large number have only been fail, found on whale falls. Um, over 100 have been described, uh, new species found on whale falls and haven't been found in abundance, or even most of them haven't been found anywhere else. So we think they're whale fall specialists that are using this chemoautotrophic system of sulfide, you know, and sulfide is an energy source. And what's really interesting, one of the interesting things about this system is that it lasts for a long time. These large whale skeletons can be a source of sulfide for decades. And we know this from a variety of approaches. Wow. One is the, the first skeleton, the first couple of natural skeletons we found, we've revisited over a period of decades. And we find even after 15 years, they're still going strong. These communities are sulfide uh, sul uh, sulfide oxidizing communities. And we've also developed a radiometric technique for de determining the, the time since death for the whales on the bottom. And we've found that some of the oldest communities have been around for 50 to 70 years 
our listeners, if you've just joined us, we're talking to Dr. Craig Smith. He's a in the Department of Oceanography. Uh, he's a marine biologist at the University of Hawaii, Manoa, and we're talking about whale falls. There's so much energy in the in the in the lipid that can be converted uh, through these uh, geochemical changes that. Uh, it's just not too surprising that the, these things would go on for decades. Yeah, it's well, you know, in retrospect, it isn't surprising, but it's not not exactly what we expected. But part of it is that there is such a huge lipid reservoir, and it's locked in this bone matrix that is just very recalcitrant. So it, it locks it in there. My question is, how do the bacteria actually get access to the interior of the bone? Well, they get in through the seawater. So they, you know, and they get to the, the bones are um, full of channels and pores and things so once the lipid is degraded there are open spaces so they can they can diffuse into the bone the the bacteria themselves can move into the bone but they're they can't get any further than this lipid this front of lipids the rich lipids so that's why they degrade it from the outside in aren't aren't these acids secreting polychaetes uh help loosen things up a little bit too yeah they do they do um And there's some evidence that in some locations um, they can, especially for juvenile whale bones that are smaller in size, they can decompose them quite quickly and they don't last very long. But for the great whale skeletons, including the ones that we've aged at 50 to 70 years, we find evidence of osidex boring, but they can only go in a few centimeters and then they deplete, they, they, the, the rest of the lipid gets out of reach and they can't degrade these big bones. Um, so then the microbes can take over. And this is, this is controversial, I must say. There are some osidex biologists that argue that they destroy all whale skeletons quickly. But in fact, we know this isn't the case, partly from studying these skeletons that we've, we've, we've studied over decades and aged for 50 to 70 years. And you actually find whale bones in the fossil record. There are actually quite a few of them have been found now. And when we survey large areas of the bottom of the ocean, for example, in the Abyssal Pacific, we've found lots of whale bones on the bottom, many of which have a manganese crust that's formed over millions of years. So we know these whale bones are, some of them are from extinct species. So we know that these bones have sat on the bottom of the ocean for millions of years. Um, so osidacs don't quickly destroy all whale skeletons. But as in science, they're always open questions and uh, controversy. Um, and that is one of the, the topics of debate. How quickly can osidex destroy whale bones of different sizes? Well, we love us a good scientific controversy. And so now is this the final stage then? Uh, is the lipid destruction or does it go on beyond that? Well, it actually does go on beyond that. Uh, this this um, the, the sulfophilic stage can last for decades or maybe many decades. But then eventually the lipid becomes depleted or it gets out of reach even. There's so deep in there that the, the oxygen or uh, sulfate can't diffuse in. And then what happens is what we call the reef stage, where it's just the skeleton is the bones that are left are just like a rock. So they provide a hard substrate for things like anemones and other kinds of uh, deep sea corals and things to colonize. And they just use it as a place to perch and feed on particles drifting by in the currents. And we do see evidence of that also. These bones that are have been on the bottom for hundreds of thousands to a million years are in the three stage. There's no evidence that there's any sulfide coming out. They're just providing a rocky substrate. Hmm. 
if you look at the the sulfophilic stage, this this stage where there's sulfide coming out and clams and mussels and things, two worms growing on the bones. Uh, if you calculate how many sulfide-rich skeletons are in the bottom of the ocean, assuming they last for 10 years, you get a very large number. Over well, we've calculated over 600,000 on any time from the current uh, populations of great whales on the bottom of the ocean. So that's a lot. That's probably an order of magnitude more than there are hydrothermal vents on the bottom of the ocean. And so one of the interesting things about whale falls is that they, these sulfophilic whale falls, is that they do support some species that are found at, found at hydrothermal vents and cold seeps and other kind of deep sea uh, sulfide-rich habitat. And it looks like they may have acted as evolutionary dispersal stepping stones for some of the seep and vent fauna. And oh. the reason we think that is because, for, in particular, for there, there's a subfamily of mussels, the Bathymodiolini. These are the giant mussels you see at hydrothermal vents and cold seeps. And these were first described from the Galapagos Spreading Center, the, the hydrothermal vents discovered by Alvin um, in whenever that was, 1977. And now it's this subfamily of mussels is now known to occur widely on hydrothermal vents, cold seeps, and also on whale falls. And the species that live on whale falls are uh, they're the most primitive members of this family. Um, what the molecular genetic studies suggest, and this is work of other scientists, is that this, the ancestors from the, for this subfamily of mussels, the bathymodiolini that live at hydrothermal vents and cold seeps originated in shallow water, these their ancestors, they developed an ability to colonize whale bones and wood falls in shallow water. And then they followed these into the deep sea and then could radiate out into hydrothermal vent and cold seep habitats in the deep ocean. And it looks like there have been multiple colonization events and radiations using this mechanism by following whale bones in particular into the deep sea. And if you look at the fossil record, this subfamily of mussels originated and shows adaptive radiation right about the time that the great whales evolved in the ocean and developed large population sizes, apparently. When was that? That's in the Miocene, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, it's about 30 to 35 million years ago, something like that. Yeah. Yeah. And there is a fossil record of whale fall communities as well. If you, in fact, debating back to the Miocene that you can find, there now have been something at like 50 fossil whale fall communities dating back to three to 35 million years where there are fossil whale bones with fossil mussels and a variety of other species uh -huh. characteristic of these chemosynthetic communities. So once this started happening, the, this specialized ecosystem developed pretty rapidly. Yeah, in evolutionary timescales, it looks like it. As you mentioned, the, you know, there's kind of two fates that a, a whale can meet when it dies in the sea, and one is... Uh, what you study, the whales that fall directly to the bottom, and then some fraction of, of the mortality actually ends up washing up on shore. Is that mainly a function of how close to shore they are when they die, or is that is, are there other processes involved in that? Well, it's probably a function of how close they are to shore and how deep the water is where they sink. We've done a number of some modeling studies, and there also have been some empirical studies with whale carcasses. And it looks like, well, first of all, most whales sink when they die. Uh, major, most whales are slightly negatively buoyant when they exhale. 
and which makes sense if you want to dive you don't want to be stuck at the surface <laughs> really positively right and then most of them are nutritionally stressed when they die so they some of their buoyancy has been lost from lipid metabolism etc and so most most great whales naturally sink to the bottom and the variety of studies now there are a number of, of publications that have addressed this it looks like if they sink in water that's 50 to 100 meters deep or more then they they stay on the bottom because as you go deeper when a whale dies it and rots it forms decompositional gases inside its body but if you're below 100 meters or it looks like even 50 meters the solubility of gas goes up and the and the volume goes down because of the pressure that they don't a whale carcass doesn't generate enough buoyancy from its decompositional gases to float up to the surface uh-huh but if you're at 50 meters or shallower, then and you sink to the bottom, as they as a whale carcass rots, then it'll float up again, and then it can be cons- then it may float for weeks. What's what's the shallowest that you've seen this uh, fauna develop on a on a whale? The specialized carcass? fauna we see in the bathymedialin mussels at 350 or 400 meters. Those that's been documented in some places in um, in the Monterey Canyon, for example. The bone-eating worm Ossidax has actually been found in shallow cold waters off Sweden um, at uh, 20 or 30 meters, it, one of the very small species. Wow. So it, some of them, I mean, this, this is an Ossidax is a group of at least 31 species, some of which are very large and globally distributed, some of which are very tiny and have only been found in you know, one, one small area. Um, but some of these Ossidax worms do occur in shallow water at high latitudes. Do they lack a gut like the lucidid uh, mollusks? Yeah, they have no gut, no mouth, no anus. Yeah. They have a really weird uh, morphology or anatomy. They have, they look like a, like, a, like, like a little palm tree. They have this giant green root-like structure that grows into the bone. It's kind of bulbous and, and green, and that's loaded with bacteria. Uh, millions and millions, probably billions of bacteria inside this root-like structure. And that's where they secrete acid from and what they grows out into the bone. And then they have a stalk or a tube that comes out of a little hole in the bone. And then they have red, look almost like palm fronds that are actually gills that are taking up oxygen um, and to, to, to provide to the bacteria. But the bacteria that live in their root-like structure, they're not using sulfide. They're actually breaking down the lipids and proteins in the bone. So it's it's the bacterial colony that's different in function than the bacterial colonies living in their relatives, the giant tube worms that live at hydrothermal vents and at cold seeps. Hmm. Um, So it's another kind of adaptation, really interesting. And plus they secrete acid. They drop acid on the bones, which is quite (laughs) remarkable. (laughs) Uh, Who secretes the acid, the bacteria or the worm itself? As far as I know, the worm itself. So they're contributing the acidity and the oxygen. Right. And the bacteria are contributing, yeah, they're breaking down the fats and releasing energy. Correct, yeah. Does methanogenesis play a role in any of this uh, or any any species that use uh, methane? Well, at the whale falls, the methanogenesis does go on. We do find methanogenic bacteria in, in the bones. So far, I don't think any of the symbionts in the animals, the mussels, the clams, the tube worms found at whale falls have uh, methanotrophic uh, symbionts. 
it is important at some of the cold seeps, some of the mussels in the same subfamily as the mussels on whale falls do have methanotrophic symbionts. So it's, it's actually quite possible that the mussels on whale falls have them as well. Um, I, I don't know that it's been adequately explored at this point. Because I'm still fascinated by this whole process of the whales migrating. And we know the gray whales migrate in a fairly narrow corridor, right, uh, along the California coast. Their carcasses are distributed kind of all in a linear way, right, in a certain distance from the shoreline. Yeah, they do go out. I mean, some places they go out, you know, tens to 100 kilometers or more offshore. It depends on where. Around Quaint Conception, it's pretty narrow, but they spread out going through the Channel Islands, for example, and up off the coast of Washington. And, mm-hmm. But it is a band of whale falls. Right. They're not out in the open ocean so much. Yeah. But other whales are, right? Absolutely. Yeah. It turns out that sperm whales are actually, they're the mo- most abundant great whale species in the ocean. Uh, half of all the great whales in the ocean are sperm whales. And they are they're wide ranging. I mean, they occur throughout the oceans um, and they travel long distances and things. So uh, and then there are also things like the humpback whales that migrate between Hawaii and, and Alaska. So, you know, if you include sperm whales and, and then there are also humpback whales that migrate from Antarctica up to the Marquesas and other islands in the in the central south central Pacific. So their, their migration patterns are going over big swaths of the ocean. And that's one of the things that's intriguing about whale falls that provide these sulfide-rich habitats, and they can occur virtually anywhere in the ocean. They don't, they're not linked to geology, like a mid-ocean ridge or like a cold seeps that occur only along ocean margins. So they have the potential to provide dispersal stepping stones across ocean basins, mm-hmm. be connecting other kinds of geologically produced sulfide-rich habitats that are very isolated. And so that's why we we think that, I mean, that's one reason they might be important as evolutionary dispersal stepping stones. You may have a new vent system that, uh, ocean ridge system that develops that's far away or, or a cold seep system that's far away from any other vents and seeps. Um, and then they, but then they could be colonized by animals that are using whale fall, whale fall stepping stones. And then they went again. They get into these new vent or seep habitats, and they could radiate because they're locally or in that small region. There'd be a lot of vent or seep habitats. But getting to those remote locations could easily be facilitated by whale falls. Yeah. Speaking of remote locations, can you tell us a little bit about how you conduct this research? <laughs> I mean, the the deep sea floor is as remote a location as as it's possible to envision on Earth. Well, the the biggest challenge is is actually finding a whale fall. You know, we early on we found the first one uh, just by accident, and I did some literature literature review and found that people had trawled up bits of whale skeletons from various places around the ocean, off New Zealand, off California, Norway. But then I got this. I think this is before email. Actually, I got this letter from. <laughs> for, this is in the in the in the early nineties. Yeah. yeah, maybe there maybe there was email. Yeah, I got a, a communication from a, a the captain of a navy submarine who said that oh um, we found eight whale skeletons and no actually twelve whale skeletons in the bottom of the ocean when we were su- surveying for a lost missile off Southern California. The, a missile crashed in the Pacific Missile Range and they used side scan sonar to survey a 200 square mile area. 
And then in the pro and whenever they saw what looked like a, what they called a linear debris field, a, a, a line of big objects on the bottom, you know, 50 centimeters or so in diameter, they went down with a remotely operated vehicle and videotaped what that was. And 12 of these linear debris fields were whale skeletons mm -hmm. on the bottom of the ocean. But the problem is that they weren't interested in whale skeletons. They were interested in missiles. And so they didn't keep a really good record of where these whale skeletons are. They gave me rough coordinates <laughs> so that they, you know, and so we went back and we could only find one of the 12 that they, and they had video of them. You could see the bones, clams on some of them, mm -hmm. you know, in very poor quality video. So we knew they were these communities, but we could only find one of them. Um, and we studied it and had, this was in San Nicolas Basin, and looked very much like the one we had found 100 kilometers away in the Santa Catalina Basin. So then we decided we needed to implant whale falls. And we didn't start whaling, um, killing whales. We needed dead whales, but we didn't kill them. There's something called the Marine Mammal Stranding Network that's maintained by NOAA that keeps track of all the marine strand, mammal strandings on the U.S. coast. And so I wrote a proposal to, to say, you know, we, we, to get money to sink whales, and that got funded from, um, from NOAA and the National Undersea Research Program. And then we informed NOAA that we, we, we like dead whales. Let us know when a whale is stranded off Southern California, and we'll go there and do a community service, tow it out to sea, take this rotting carcass off the beach where it's a health hazard, and tow it out to sea and sink it. And so we were able to sink three whales carcasses this way, and then return with Alvin, the human-occupied vehicle, or with remotely operated vehicles, robotic vehicles with manipulators and video systems, and then study them over time. And we also returned to the original whale skeletons that we, natural ones that we found. So we studied these five carcasses over a period of something like 12 years, uh -huh. which is quite challenging. I mean, sinking them, first of all, that was probably the most difficult part and the smelliest part. Uh, well, dead whales are really stinky. Um, and then for each, each time we visited them, we had to write a proposal and get a separate set of cruises. But we were able to do this, and that's how we have this good understanding of the succession that occurs on whale falls and all these um, different species that look like whale fall specialists that, that colonize them. Did you ever read that account of uh, someone who's was trying to uh, deal with a whale carcass on a beach in Oregon. Yeah, the exploding, <laughs> they, uh, the yeah. exploding well, whale they, carcass. Yeah. Oh, my God. <laughs> well, they blew, blew it up with dynamite. That was uh, pretty hilarious. That's absolutely hilarious, yeah, the exploding whale video. And I've actually visited that beach. We were, uh, I've forgotten the name of the, uh, what is it called? Florence, Florence, <laughs> Florence Oregon. And, and we were at a deep sea biology meeting in Oregon and we were driving down the coast with a bunch of deep sea biologists. And we stopped in Florence for dinner, for a lunch, not realizing. And then we were sitting in this restaurant in Florence and I was thinking, Florence, Florence, why does that sound familiar to me? Oh, that's where the exploding whale, fall, whale video comes from. And so I, I told my deep sea colleagues, you know, that many of whom are interested in whale fall biology and they didn't believe me. So I said, well, I'll, let's 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 see. Let, I'll ask the waitress, and I, you know, so the waitress who was in her twenties, you know, I called her over and said, "Is this where the exploding whale video was filmed?" And she said, "That was disgusting. We don't talk about it anymore here." <laughs> <laughs> so then we visited the beach where it occurred, and yeah, that that's. 
that's a must viewing for people interested in in dead whales actually well i would just think that you could use that in your grant proposals too here's your alternative and we're offering a better way yeah 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 well it is it is really a community service because people actually have been ex killed by ex exploding natural whales they do build up decompositional gases and there's one whale recorded well recorded event in taiwan where they were carrying a dead sperm whale in a truck I think it was through Taipei, through a, a city in Taiwan, and it exploded due to decompositional gases and blew the windows out of the buildings in the vicinity. It was such a concussion. Wow. Um, so it really is a community service to take them off the beach. This is a really interesting conversation. Uh, our listeners, if you've just joined us, we're talking to Dr. Craig Smith. He's a in the Department of Oceanography. Uh, he's a marine biologist at the University of Hawaii. Manoa, and we're talking about whale falls. So how many times have you actually managed to do it? Um, we've towed and sunk five different whale carcasses from the, from the beach or, or from shallow water, actually six, um, two up in Washington and uh, three up in Washington and four off, uh, three off California. Uh -huh. And then how many uh, natural ones have you just found? Well, we've studied two natural ones in detail, but a lot of other people have found natural ones. It's up in the 20s of natural carcasses that have been found. And also bits of natural carcasses have been trawled up from the deep sea uh, with these, you know, some of the animals living on the bones. Mm -hmm. If you trawl up a bone, a lot of the animals fall off or get washed right. off, but you still find these mussels. And there's a big deep sea fishery off New Zealand for orange ruffy. And there are also whales, a whale population there. And Quite a few whale bones have been trawled up off New Zealand with um, some of these whale fall community, uh, whale bone communities on them. This is probably a good place to mention that, and I'll put a link on our website uh, about this. Um, and our website is ecologyhour.wordpress.com. Uh, but our guest a couple of months ago was uh, Dr. Barry from uh, from uh, the um, Monterey Bay Aquarium Research Institute. Oh, Jim Barry, yeah, yeah. yeah. And uh, they had they they found one a uh, couple of years ago, I guess, with an ROV, uh, and very yeah. they were very excited about it. And they have video of that uh, on YouTube at different stages. I think about a year apart. Mm -hmm. So I'll put links mm -hmm. to those videos up and uh, uh, and any that you can suggest as well uh, for our listeners to sure. find out more about this uh, really interesting little ecosystem that just develops uh, in response to these occurrences scattered all over the ocean. Really a fascinating topic. There's one other, if we have a little bit of time, there's one other connection that's worth mentioning with these whale fall ecosystems, and that is that we now, um, you know, there's a lot of evidence that there are quite a diversity of whale fall specialists, species of animals that require whale falls to complete their life history and you know, survive in the ocean. And if you look at the effects of whaling over human history, it's vastly reduced the abundance of whale fall habitats, especially in places like the North Atlantic where species have been extirpated or gone extinct. And in the Southern Ocean where there was an enormous abundance before 1900 of great whales and now that's been heavily depleted and is just beginning to recover. And so we've actually, north of, oh, go ahead. 
North Pacific, North Pacific, I think it was like a half a million after World yeah, War the II. Yeah, that's right. In the North Pacific, huge, 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 yeah, huge. Yeah, depletion yeah. of whales. And if you, we've actually done a modeling paper recently, published a modeling paper where we looked at the abundance of whale fall habitats and um, and how long they persist based on this, the the the, deplete, the way the lipids are depleted. And what we the modeling suggests is that. Um, the reduction in the abundance of whales and also the reduction of the size of whales because whaling targeted the largest species and the largest individual within species, that, that the size of whales has been reduced dramatically, which is most important, but also the abundance of whales. And this is, is leading and has led to substantial extinction pressure um, by habitat loss on whale fall specialists in places like the North Atlantic. The North Pacific also, although that depletion is so recent that there's something called an extinction deck. When you when you remove a habitat, you know the species persists for some time in the remaining habitat for a few generations before they go extinct. And in the North Pacific, if whale fall, uh, sulfide rich whale fall lasts for a few decades, there's still it probably hasn't gone to its completion yet the extinction. But in the North Atlantic, it probably has. For some species, and in in the um, in the 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 Antarctic, it, it probably is well along. Um, but that speaks to, you know, particularly in the North Pacific, the the, ben the potential benefits, biodiversity benefits of allowing whale fall population whale populations to recover, so the deep sea species depending on them don't go extinct. There is some hope in the North Pacific. I think it's a kind of not well known how much whaling went on in the North North Pacific in the fifties and sixties and seventies. <laughs> yeah, well, it, all those all those vessels that were uh, used during World War Two uh, got turned into a lot of those got turned into whaling vessels yeah. in the North Pacific, and the Russians and Japanese uh, really went out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, we did a show. Uh, was it last year? Year before last? Was that your buddy Springer? Talking about the you yeah, know, the right. the effects of the loss, uh, the sudden extirpation of the small whale species from the North Pacific, uh, and then the orcas that had been basically living off of those had to turn their attentions to some some other source of food, and they wound up mm -hmm. going through a whole chain from small whales to uh, actually I guess harbor seals were the next best because they were abundant and fat and slow, so they would depleted them pretty quickly and then turn to otters and sea lions and sea lions well J jim Essis was in on that as well right yeah. studying those otters it's amazing how all these different things start to come together you know these linkages between all these different ecosystems i mean we're talking with you about what's happening in the seafloor with dead whales and then it winds up circling back to what happened at the surface of the ocean a few decades ago with living yep. whales. Yeah. yeah, it really highlights how connected ocean ecosystems are. I mean, they're oceans, ocean ecosystems are connected in much better connected over larger scales than, than terrestrial ecosystems, partly because of the fluid medium that these larvae, for example, can drift for large distances and maintain population connectivity. In terrestrial environments, birds, of course, provide connection over very large scales, but most of the fauna isn't connected over, you know, these same ocean basins, the scales that are equivalent to ocean basins, for example. Yeah, you probably have very few endemic species in the deep sea. 
Well, depending on how you define it, right? <laughs> depends on how you define it. There, there is a huge diversity of species in the deep sea, and there are lots of habitat specialists on whale falls, on cold seeps, on hydrothermal vents, because there actually is a lot of habitat heterogeneity in the deep sea. And so the fact that their larvae can disperse large distances actually allows species to exploit uh, you know, localized but rich habitats in ways that might not occur if they couldn't disperse broadly in the water column. So, they're, but, so they can maintain connectivity between isolated patches, but they don't occur in between. So it depends, I mean, they're habitat endemic species. There's a lot of habitat endemism in the deep sea. It looks like a, a smooth layer of mud uh, can contain uh, hundreds of species of uh, benthic Absolutely, yeah. Really I mean, interesting. Yeah, we, we've yeah. done, I mean, a lot of my work has been on soft sediments and biodiversity. And, you know, people get all excited when you discover a new species in terrestrial environments. Every time we go out and collect a box score sample, which is a quarter square meter area of mud in the abyssal ocean, we bring up anywhere between 50 to 100 species that are new to science <laughs> that no one has ever seen before. And at any location, you know, larger area, there are thousands. Um, so yeah, one, and one square meter of mud has hundreds of species of polychaete worms, for example. Um, much higher local diversity than you find in a mudflat in shallow water, which is a very weird thing, actually. Yeah, that is. I remember I spent two years in uh, Australia in the early 70s, and uh, we were doing benthic studies in Port Phillip Bay, uh -huh. where Melbourne was. And uh, and it was like, okay, this is spionted number two, and is that the same as spionted number 12? All of them were unnamed. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, we just flooded with uh, new species. Yeah. I, I could have spent the rest of my life describing new species of polychaetes that uh, I didn't. <laughs> so you may have mentioned this, I don't, but I don't remember. Do you have an estimate for how many different species are living on these whale falls? We actually don't have a good estimate because they're so poorly sampled. Um, <laughs> the whale falls off Southern California, we get anywhere from 100 to 200 species living on the sulfophilic stage of macrofauna. That's not including bacteria and some of the you know, myofauna and things. Globally, the last time we did this estimate, it was something over 400. Uh, I haven't haven't revisited that um, in terms of total species. In terms of what look like whale fall specialists, you know, things that require whale falls as a habitat, it's something over 100. Huh. But again, almost all of those come from studies off Southern California that we did and that have been done in Monterey Canyon by the Ambari. Monterey Bay Aquarium Research Institute biologists, and some work done off Japan, a little bit of work done um, in the Antarctic and a few other places. But whale fall habitats are just very poorly sampled globally. So it's not really possible to come up with a, a reasonable global estimate. But it is a very, it's an intri really intriguing question. Yeah. We do find some cosmopolitan species. There's a large species of bone-eating worm um, that gets to be eight or 10 centimeters long and a centimeter in diameter. And that's been found, it was originally described from Monterey Canyon. It's been described off uh, the coast of Japan and we found it in Antarctica, actually. The same species based on molecular genetics. So some of them can get around. And this, this large species hasn't been found 
and, and any other kinds of bones uh, hmm. growing into adult size. So it, it looks like it looks to me like a whale fall specialist. Some of the acidacs, very small acidacs, have been found on other kinds of bones. If, for example, in, in Monterey Canyon, they put out cow bones next to a whale skeleton, and some of the acidacs colonize the cow bones. <laughs> But it's not clear that that's really important. I mean, if you that's any time you put a, a suitable habitat next to a giant population that's raining out individuals, you can get some colonization. Um, you know, you find you find polar bears in in dumps, living mm. you know in cities that are in wilderness areas, but you know come feeding in dumps. But that doesn't mean that's an important habitat for them. Right. I mean, the bottom line about how many species live on whale falls globally is just a very open question. But locally, they actually are the most diverse chemosynthetic habitats. We found more species on individual whale falls than you f find at cold seeps, for example, mm -hmm. which is really interesting. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, that is. Because cold cold seeps are pretty old, too. They are old, they've been, yeah. They've been at it for a while. Yeah. And, and hydrothermal vents have been around a long time, too. And there is yeah. a, there's a better fossil record for cold seeps. There is a limited one for hydrothermal vents. But when the, the, what the vents, the vent fossils that they found, uh, you know, 100 million years ago, 50 million years ago, are different. They seem to be different organisms than those living at vents now. Um, so it looks like it was a different fauna, and the and the cold seep fauna has also an, undergone, a de, you know, radiations where diversifications, um, and one of those diversifications for cold seep fauna happens to be at the time that great whales evolved, which is, to me, I find very intriguing mm -hmm. yeah, yeah yeah well you know the way you've described it it's a a pretty massive change in in the ecosystem down at the bottom of the ocean when you have these very large and extremely energy dense objects suddenly deposited right. in the middle of this previously impoverished you know food food impoverished region and then you just dump mm -hmm. a bonanza into the middle of it uh, it's no real wonder that evolution will suddenly get to work on that. Yeah. I remember reading uh, a paper by Pearson and Rosenberg back in 1978 on a theory of organic enrichment. And it's, it ties, it's not about, it doesn't really touch on whale falls, but it touches about what happens when you dump a bunch of organic matter in uh, marine mud and what, how the animals respond to it. Yeah, exactly. And actually, you know, the, the succession they describe around outfalls and, you know, places where organic material is dumped from the, the wood mills and sewer outfalls is functionally very similar to what we see on whale falls, particularly the enrichment opportunist stage. Um, right. And that's, you know, so we've, you know, we've actually borrowed that term from their, their paper, their original yeah, paper. Yeah, uh -huh. yeah. Yeah. Well, I think we're probably, uh, yeah, we're about run, winding up uh, our time here. And so a couple of things I'd like to maybe have you finish up with. Uh, one is what areas of research are you planning to do? Yeah, well, um, some of the things we're thinking about doing, one of the collaborations I'm working on is with Ocean Network Canada. And this is an ocean observing system. They have nodes that are continually monitoring with videos, real-time video and Right of instruments, different spots on the ocean floor. But what we're what we're planning to do is sink a whale carcass in front of one of these um, observatories nodes, so we can monitor it in real time 
24-7 yeah. with video and other oceanographic instrumentation for years and really get a good characterization of how these different stages develop, successional stages, when microbial mass come in and how they change things, what Ocidex does over time. And so that and that also will be a very nice outreach component because we, Ocean Networks kind of involve citizen scientists. They generate so much data from these continuous observations that they have people from the public. They say, well, come in and, and uh, look at our, our, our images, for example, over the last few years and, and write down when you see or note when you see unusual things happen or the system changes. And this gives a way for citizens to get involved with the science and also get uh, analysis of enormous data sets that otherwise would be somewhat intractable uh, for an individual just to, to view themselves. And then another thing I'm, I'm really interested in is, is trying to look at this idea that there may have been species extinctions resulting from whaling and to do controlled experiments, putting down controlled substrates of whale bones in different parts of the ocean. And if there have been whale, whale fall extinctions, extinctions of species that use whale bones as a, as a habitat, then you would predict in areas where there's a long history of whale depletion that you would expect to see lower diversity in the same kind of experiment, a controlled experiment compared to somewhere where there still is a, a healthy whale population like off the west coast of the US. We've done some experiments like that, and we'd like to do them in Antarctica. We have other collaborators that are interested in doing them other places. We actually have collaborated with Brazilian scientists, and they've done it off the coast of Brazil, similar to what we've done off Oregon, um, Washington margin. So th those are some of the things. But also just generally sampling whale bones in different parts of the ocean, um, I think, is to get a better global sense of what these communities look like and the diversity in them on a global scale. I remember the question I was going to ask about whether uh, some of these other marine mammals that are, aren't quite as big as whales might be a fall, you know, like a big sea lion or uh, seals or something. Yeah, well, they certainly can uh, extract a mobile scavenger stage. Yeah. They have a lot of soft tissue, and yeah. so they do bring in big scavengers. Yeah. There have been some studies of big sharks and and other and marine mammals, dolphins and things. They may cause some organic enrichment, although it's not nothing the scale of a great whale. Yeah. In terms of the sulfophilic stage, they don't seem to produce this sulfophilic stage because their right. bones aren't big enough and they don't seem to have a big enough lipid reservoir to really do this. So it's their emergent qualities of great whales that in terms of the size of their bones, the strength of their skeleton and the lipid content that facilitates this ecosystem to develop. Uh, Dr. Smith, thank you very much for joining us. Well, thanks very much. It's been really fun and interesting. It's always a pleasure to talk about your scientific passions. <laughs> You've been listening to the Ecology Hour on KZYX. Our guest tonight was Dr. Craig Smith, the University of Hawaii at Manoa, and our topic was the ecological community that develops on whale carcasses after they fall to the bottom of the deep blue sea. If you'd like to learn more about this topic, we'll have some information for you on our website, ecologyhour.wordpress.com. This has been a production of KZYX Philo 90.7 FM, KZYZ Willits and Ukiah 91.5 FM, and Fort Bragg at 88.1 FM, Mendocino County Public Broadcasting. You can check out our website at kzyx.org to find more content like this, and consider donating by clicking the red donate button in the upper right corner. Thanks for listening.